Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Okay, this is Paul Axton, and today I'm here with John. Uh, we're going to talk about Thomism and the received understanding that you get of Thomism in North America in particular. Uh, not simply that, but in a neo-Thomist understanding, a kind of uh, return to Thomas and a nouvelle theology or a transcendental theology. Uh, maybe a little bit just touch upon an analytical Thomism. The idea is that there are these various people out there, various schools, various forms of thought that form a kind of silos of understanding that often do not talk to each other and, and in fact, are working on a very different philosophical basis. And so I think it's, there's great value, first of all, just in locating people and where they're coming from because there's a kind of a conservative backlash, there's trad Catholics, there's a whole school of people uh, discussing a kind of analytical Thomism that seem fairly unaware that they're actually working in isolation. And then, of course, there is the understanding that you get in a transcendental Thomism, which is probably not a great name, or Nouvelle Theology, that is... I think it is influenced much more from a kind of continental theological or philosophical understanding. But John is going to help us, and I think, John, your your background is peculiar. Just we can end it there. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of those peculiar people. No, with your, you've gone through, in a sense, your journey has taken you into contact with various understandings. And and even though we're talking about Thomas, there's a sense in which this, it really gets at sort of the divides that are there in a Protestant understanding also. But anyway, let's start with uh, a, a neo-Thomism. Can you run down for us then, what is that and what is its significance? Yeah, so I, I'm glad that you put it that way, that this is sort of an academic conversation, but also not really, because you encounter these things in uh, strange places, even on social media and whatnot. So neo-Thomism, or what is also referred to, I guess, more broadly sometimes as neo-scholasticism, comes out of Vatican I in the late 19th century. And its you know main contenders are Pope Leo XIII, I guess before him Pope Pius IX, after him Pope Pius X, and so on. And what they had imagined or intended to do was to use Thomas as what they understood to be the pinnacle of uh, scholastic philosophy as a bulwark against modernity. Now, it's interesting that uh, the sort of modernity that they had thought they were arguing against may or may not have ever existed within the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Uh, but they thought that Thomas could provide all the answers. So the way they go about appropriating Thomas is really what makes Neo-Thomism something apart from other readings. They look back to the commentaries of the 16th century done by Cajetan, or I've heard it said Cajetan or Suarez, and they look towards what is known as the manualist tradition, so these books written by uh, theologians that nobody's ever heard of writing what Thomas supposedly said. And they want to 
make that the standard of education, both in Roman Catholic colleges, also for Roman Catholic philosophers and theologians, whether they're lay theologians or philosophers or ordained, even down into what we now think of as being like high school and grade school philosophy or religion classes. And in doing that is really where the error lies. So they're imagining to reappropriate a theology that was uh, constructed in the 13th century that's imaginative and seeking to provide a synthesis to the patristic world along with Aristotelian philosophy that's just been rediscovered, uh, the classical philosophy of Plato that had been dispensed throughout the Augustinian tradition. And Thomas thinks he's going to synthesize these things to provide a way forward or a way that uh, traditional Christianity, as it's known then, uh, can continue to survive and flourish. But they want to reappropriate that synthesis more in terms of a law to be worked out against and that can be legislated against uh, modernity. Mm -hmm. And so there, it, it is a kind of the school book Thomism that will be given to most Catholic priests. That is, they're not being prepared to be theologians or philosophers. Mm -hmm. For an but, era, yeah. And so, well, here is a kind of breakdown of the authoritative understanding, which you're saying is a betrayal, in a sense, of the very spirit of Thomas, which is a, an innovation in thought and an attempt to extend a, a way of thinking that is an active engagement then with at least what was contemporary to him. And what it's hmm. become then is just a kind of unthinking repetition in an authoritative sense, almost in a scriptural kind of way that, well, here are the answers. We may not need to apply yes. this. It becomes a proof text, in other words. Yeah, so I, I think that's right. I was thinking of like, objections that might be raised to what I said uh, or your uh, summary as well. And like, I get that, yes, Thomas was writing a textbook when he writes the Summa, but I think what was in mind, even the method of education then is much more dialogical. You know, something was going to come out of this. It's not stagnant. Certainly wasn't conceived of by Thomas as a, um, as a law to be imposed on philosophers and theologians. And so today that we have the whole return to the Latin mass, trad Catholics, how does that fit in, do you think, to, uh, or does it, to mm -hmm. neo-Thomism? Well, of course, this is all just conjecture, because um, I don't know, and there, I don't know of any scholarship. And this is what's so interesting about this phenomenon, that while there certainly are scholars that are writing on Thomas Aquinas from a neo-Thomistic bent now, trying to rehabilitate uh, that sort of version, uh, where you encounter this most is in young, mostly converts or people who have just gotten serious about their faith in Roman Catholicism in their 20s or 30s. And it, with this return to these clear-cut answers that you maybe could find in the Summa, uh, there's also a, re a return or a, you know, nobody's actually returned to this yet. There's very few places you can actually go to a Latin Mass, but there's this longing for the Tridentine Mass and all of its pomp. There's this longing for thinking of cardinals and bishops as princes of the church with not only ecclesiastical authority, uh, but also secular authority. And then there's a, a longing for of setting up this sort of hierarchy 
that not only gives you clear-cut answers to maybe philosophical and theological questions, but also allows you to then adjudicate issues that apply to, you know, our social realms or mm-hmm. um, just any area of life. And, and that's what's perhaps most strange. Like, why is that compelling at this point in time? I'm not for sure, but it seems to uh, coincide with the same sort of rise of uh, you know, white supremacy. That's probably ridiculous for me to say that white supremacy is just on the rise, but you know what I mean? That it's, it's, mm-hmm. ba- it's a hot topic once again, not that it right. ever went away. Or the sort of alt-right conservatism. All of these things, I don't know if there are connections that could be run down, but it sure seems more than just coincidental that you have these movements and some of the same people in all of these movements. So that there is a, a kind of refusal of engagement at several levels, which is seemingly over and against the whole spirit. If we ran down another school of thought in regard to Thomism, maybe the Nouvelle Theology or mm. Transcendental Thomism. And again, many much of this may be hard to capture, but it seems to be exactly opposite to yeah. a yeah. neo-Thomist. I can say at least their spirits are opposed, right? So that uh, with neo-Thomism, because you have clear-cut answers and you can say this is the way that it is, and then you can have ways of legislating. Uh, And this is, of course, what happened, that Roman Catholic theologians and philosophers were deposed because they didn't fall in line with the understanding that was coming down from the magisterium. That's sort of divisive in a way where it's exclusive, just the opposite of that, the spirit of the New Vale theology, which isn't an ironic, it's that's the new theology, when the whole point of it is to look back and look deeper into the tradition for consensus. It's not just to romanticize the tradition, but to look backwards, look into the theological tradition, where, have, where has there been a consensus theologically, uh, and then how can we appropriate that in a way that is creative and allows for greater Christian unity now as we move forward. But there are always those two things, right? Uh, looking back and then a move forward as well, a resourcement and an aggiornamento. So um, I think the spirit of the Nouvelle Theology and the spirit of Neotomism are definitely opposed in those senses. And let me throw another wrench in the whole thing, and that is that within all of this, there, there may be a, a Protestant, understanding and rejection of Thomism that, first of all, is probably mistaken. Hmm. Uh, that is, that that this was, you know, if you go back to when I was in school, that the whole reaction uh, against Thomism, which may in fact been more of a reaction unknowingly against someone like Duns Scotus and the notion of the university of being. In that error or in that mistake, I think that there is an element of truth, or let me, let me throw mm-hmm. this out here and see if you agree. And that is that one of the things that modernity consists of is then that it certainly is secular, that it is a departure of reason, uh, of course, but of culture and of many things, then from its grounding in a theological understanding. So that where that, yeah, that's the assumption anyway, right? The assumption is that you can do such a yeah. thing, yeah, and that the queen of the sciences is no, is queen no more. Mm-hmm. That that theology is deposed either 
in a knowing way, and this, of course, would be the whipping boy here is always, of course, Rene Descartes. I just happen to think he's a perfectly good whipping boy, uh, not because it's all his fault, but because he does represent then a clear departure that is coming about mm -hmm. in, in that time, and that is that he does indeed want to set reason, science, philosophy in a realm of its own over and against or not in dependence upon revelation and theology. Mm -hmm. First of all, is that a fair picture? In other words, uh, that secularism is one of the characteristics, the key characteristics, that we might say, well, this is in fact giving rise to something like neo-Thomism. Yeah, the, uh, in, at least in the sense they operate in the same way. I mean, this is a, I almost find Howard Wass's pithy way of saying this to be most helpful in thinking about the difference here that you know, he will say modernity is just people telling themselves that they can choose their story at a point in time when they have no story. And of course, you see kind of how silly that is. But that's exactly sort of what neo-scholasticism purports to do. It says, here, we could pick this theology where we can cherry pick a theology out of history, all historically. We don't have to worry about uh, its own historical entanglements, where, it's, where it came from, where it was going. And we can make that our story now <laughs> yeah. in the late 20th century. I mean, it is very much, uh, in this refashions, of course, the, the Roman Catholic Church at that time. But it doesn't last very long, um, I guess like modernity itself. I mean, it has its own, the seeds of its undoing are already planted and it's sowing, right? Right. And so part of this is radical orthodoxy's telling of this story. And I've always thought, okay, did radical is radical orthodoxy telling the story correctly? And I've always thought, well, in part, it really doesn't matter. That is, that the end of the story, we all kind of, and of course, what they do, they don't. They say, well, it's not really Rene Descartes; it's Dun Scotus. And then we get a reading of Dun Scotus, and whether it is right or wrong, I mean, I think you can argue both sides of this, and that is that what we get in, in Dun Scotus is a university of being, and the, the sensibility of a university of being, you know, this is Milbank and others, that they're saying that uh, being then becomes a category that floats free of theology, of God himself, in a sense, and becomes, in other words, this is metaphysics. This is the sense. Yeah. Well, it's anti-metaphysics, right? It's actually it's to say that we can speak about being univocally, or we can speak about being on a one-to-one -one ratio. It is what people often call metaphysics that is already a failed metaphysics. Yeah, yeah. It's a. I mean, yes. So it's a. It's a type of dualism because, of course, I mean, this is the interesting thing about all this, right? That uh, the idea of a university of being works very well with more of a materialist, eminent frame view of the world. There's nothing more than this uh, because it is. It's a turn to a new way of speaking. But of course, you know, Dun Scotus and Occam, for with all their faults, they still at least paid lip service. And I, I mean, that's not even fair. They, they truly believed in a transcendent God, right? And so it's almost like just an, it's inherently dualistic in that sense, I think. And, and maybe that's the, the thing we need to say here. And uh, I've always worked in this frame of understanding that 
that you can characterize then the failure in a kind of universal way. And I, I, I agree with what's happening in radical orthodoxy. And of course, that's my own background at, uh, studying at Nottingham University. And when you say study, I'm not sure that one actually, it's such a broad association. But the thing that you get is that there is always a dualism at work. And what, I, what is meant by a dualism is that in order for things like reason to function independently or in order to have a dialectic, that dialectic is going to occur either through a openly dualistic system or an inherently dualistic system. And that then would characterize Duns Scotus. Mm -hmm. It would characterize Rene Descartes. But William it, of Ockham, yeah. And maybe just modernity. Mm -hmm. But I would just take it further and say, well, that's not just modernity. And, and of course, here I'm making a huge claim that I'm just saying, I would just say, yeah, that's just, that's human thought outside of a Christian reference. And in other words, part of what we're saved from is a failed epistemology. I mean, I think like at one level, okay, that's true. Like it's easy to see that. But I think the, where most of the argument lies is actually is, is in how this is operating. So I know uh, like we could talk about, as you often do, you can just look back to the Garden of Eden. This is exactly what sin is or how sin is described in scripture as a sort of dualism within one's own self. It's a dualism between knowing and being. But at the same time, I think that if we're going to be historically accurate, we do have to admit that there are plenty of cultures or philosophers who have at least lived or operated in ways that if there's a dualism that exists there, sure, whatever, we can call that sin, but it's not at least operating in the same way as modernity is operating right, in the sense right. that nobody's advocating for pure reason or anything. Like that, right, you know? right, right, right. Yeah. In all of this, the attempt to save Duns Scotus from the critique or to say that the critique of Milbank and others is incorrect is to say, well, Duns Scotus is actually just describing an epistemology, and he is not doing a metaphysics. But, of course, what Milbank would answer is, well, you can't do that. In other words, you can't yeah. imagine a, an epistemology apart from grounding it in a prior metaphysical understanding. And so, That's right. Yeah. And so I, I would just say, okay, I understand that Milbank is often criticized for his loose reading of things. But at least in this instance, I think that they, in, whether mm -hmm. Dun Scotus is the culprit, I don't know that it matters who the culprit is. But the characterization of Dun Scotus, I think, is correct. That is, the characterization of the problem is correct. And yeah, that's right. It relates to Thomism, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is how the different ways of reading Thomas, or at least the different ways of, you could almost say the different ways of studying Thomas, because um, it's not as in if these schools, except maybe, uh, with the exception of neo-Thomism, neo-scholasticism, they're not discrete things. I mean, there's people who fall all over the place. So there's 
like it, I mean, I could not actually run down right now for you the difference between Nouvelle theology and transcendental Thomism. They are different, but they also share a lot of similarities. And then there's strict observance. What uh, So Bernard McGinn in his little book, he refers to as strict observance Thomism. That would be your neo-Thomism or neo-scholasticism. And then there's a historical Thomism. These things kind of worked out in steps so that, you know, you have the Neo-scholastic Thomas, completely ahistorical, wanting to use Thomas as a sort of law, theological law for the church. Then you have people like Etienne Gilson and uh, Jacques Maritain, you know, looking at Thomas historically, but they're not fully on board with the Nouvelle theology, or there's going to be disagreements there. And then you have people like Balthazar, Lonergan, and Rahner, who aren't all on the same page, but they're doing something much more similar <laughs> than, you know, uh, they would be able to be categorized with, you know, neo-scholasticism. So you, there is sort of a range, I guess is what I'm trying to say. There's a spectrum there. Right. Because people debate all the time, you know, where, where do you fit? If Rahner's a transcendental Thomist, does Lonergan also that? I don't know. You know, that's yeah, yeah. ongoing arguments. But the, the ideas then of, a high, of Martin Heidegger or, or those who in fact are uh, attempting a critique and very much a Catholic Mm-hmm. You, you know, Heidegger, even though he ends up an atheist or whatever he is, a Nazi. The, <laughs> at least he's working within a Jesuit, a kind of philosophical Thomism in a sense. We've got the Lonerganians, the, those doing a Nouvelle theology. Could we broaden that out that at Duke University, you know, you've got Stanley Hauerwas and those in kind of that spirit who in, I think are of a similar mode of understanding. And, you know, you've already mentioned radical orthodoxy. That's sort of, so you got post-liberalism, radical orthodoxy, you have the Nouvelle Theology, you have all of these movements in the 20th century that are interested in doing a theology with, you know, historical grounding. So when they read things from the past, they don't assume that they sort of float free. You know, it's not, nothing exists in this realm of just reason. So they read past documents uh, much better than people that came before them. That's one of the things they all have in common. But they also think that there are creative ways as we look deeper into the Christian tradition that has gone before us, that we can take those things and apply them to the problems that we might face today, um, not as sort of just in an uncritical way, but rather in a creative engagement, which is what, you know, Thomas was doing himself. He he quotes scripture the most, quotes Augustine the second most, and quotes who now refer to as pseudo-Dionysius, the Areopagite, the third most. So, and he's blending those things with the thought of Aristotle, which was a real problem during his lifetime. It's not like he chooses to, to use the philosopher, as he names him, Aristotle, just because, uh, you know, he thought that Aristotle knew something Christians didn't. But the fact that uh, Aristotelian philosophy had been introduced into Europe was causing issues um, for how, how can we reconcile the faith with this new knowledge. So it's a, it is a practical theology in one sense as well, as strange as that would sound to anybody who's, you know, tried to wade through all of this. But it is, you know, it's useful in that sense. It fits with his day. And so I think there, in the movements that you just talked about, there's an awareness that that's the way theology works. Uh, The way that we talk about God in some way is um, a way that is pertinent to every other aspect of our lives, 
And that's the program that I think Thomas is laying out in the beginning of the Summa. That's definitely what radical orthodoxy, it, it, even in the terms of its name, you know, radix, uh, radical coming from the Latin radix, root or core, going back to the core of things, which you know, is going to deal with these large questions about being and whatnot. But we're going to do that theologically because theology has something to say about every aspect of life. And, you know, post-liberalism in a different way does that too, thinking about humans as an embodied, in an embodied sense with these stories that were located in time. So all that's, I think, what is the reaction to neo-Thomism. You know, though, that in a way, you could say that that's just a reaction to Protestantism as well, that neo-scholasticism, neo-Thomism, and forms of Reformed theology and you know, Lutheranism and uh, within Anglicanism as well, all suffer from those same issues of wanting to be ahistorical, wanting to figure out doctrine in the realm of pure reason and whatnot. Let's state then the, the foundation and lack of foundation, and that is that it is Augustine's faith-seeking understanding that it is a theological foundation of faith, but does not presume to be able to lay its own foundation. At least that's the spirit, right, of mm -hmm. all of these movements. The question is, and I think the argument would be, a bad Protestant reading of Thomas would be that that's not what he's doing. So, you know, you're mentioning the way I came at this, you know, just in my own life. The first place I encountered Thomas was at a little Christian church Bible college, and Aquinas was most closely associated with apologetics, which is, you know, I imagine a field that would have been most uninteresting to Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, but if that's the way you're going to come at what he's doing, then of course it's going to sound like that is sort of a, you know, what would you call it, a crude, like, foundational theology that's mm -hmm. using reason or whatever. Just nothing could be farther from the truth. The only reason Thomas thinks you can actually talk. So he, his picture is, of course, that if there are two types of knowledge, they're not opposed to each other in the sense that it's not dualistic, but rather there's the knowledge that God has, and then all other knowledge has to participate in that. But of course, none of us know as God does because we're finite. But the way he works that out so that it's not dualistic is, of course, that uh, we are dependent and our knowledge is wholly dependent upon who God is, whereas God is not dependent upon anything. And so that revelation, what is revelation then about? Well, it's about the God who has, of his love, created and is the continual source of all things and the redemption of all things and the one who is bringing all things to their proper end. So Aquinas thinks that revelation, if it's about God, it's also about all of those other things. Uh, in turn. And so that's why theology has something to say about everything. This is a knowledge. Theology is, properly speaking, a knowledge that is divinely inspired, or it's a, revel a revealed knowledge. It intersects, though, with reality, because reality is what's being revealed as God reveals who he is to us by his work through history. Um, you know, I mean, that's really not that controversial, actually. But Whenever, when you're trying to read those bits of Thomas, or when you try to make that work in a system that already thinks that, well, God's up here, you know, we're down here, and we we don't possibly know anything about God, 
Um, and by the way, the only reason we exist is because God willed us to exist. And the only reason some of us are saved and some of us aren't is because God wills for some to be saved and God wills for some to be damned. That's really what, you know, you get those degenerated forms of theology and reformed theology, but so too in Roman Catholic circles in the 16th century. It's this turn uh, to voluntarism. Who is God? Well, God is sovereign. So how are we going to talk about creation and relation to God? Well, it all has to do with the will. That's not, that's just foreign to what Aquinas himself is doing. And this brings us to a strange thing, analytical philosophy. In other words, there are analytical Thomists. And my suspicion, and I would hope that I'm wrong here, but my suspicion is that you have just described then the silo of understanding perhaps in which analytical Thomists will tend to find themselves. Hmm. So that's what I'm least familiar with, so you're going to have to do all the work here. Well, I, uh, <laughs> that's why I'm talking to you, <laughs> It's clear ways in which this might be true, that what you're getting in a Protestant theology, in a Protestant understanding that I think carries over into a philosophical understanding is then focus upon will, upon sovereignty, and that will and sovereignty, not just as it exists in God, but then carried over into a notion that human will is in some way primary and in some way is acting or can act or human reason can act independently, as if there is truth in the whole notion of a kind of radical individualism, the truth of radical individual choice, radical exercises of individual will. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not simply Protestantism. There are elements, there are Catholic Oh, absolutely. That's why I just Banyas and Domingo Banyas and uh, Luis de Molina, <laughs> two prime examples of falling into this kind of voluntarist trap. That in some way, human will, along with God's will, becomes primary. Yeah. I, and so you said something, as you were saying all this, like you were talking about truth and being, and I think this is the, this is actually the issue at stake, right, is that in those conversations, and I can only imagine that they might be held uh, by analytic, analytical Thomists, but they're imagining to come at all of these topics univocally so that, you know, logic will deliver you truth. Or when we're talking about, when we're talking about truth or when we're talking about being as we understand it, we're talking about the concept as well. And of course, that's, you know, that wouldn't have been a notion that Aquinas would have even been familiar with. Mm -hmm. The university of being, you know, in a, you know, this was always Schaefer, and I, I, I know that Schaefer missed it. But in a sense, his mistake was not entirely wrong. And that is that he was misreading the analogy of being analogia entis, as first of all, uh, I think he was confusing Scotus's university of being and, and was reading that back into Thomas and then was reading Thomas as a kind of foundational. Well, the mistakes don't really matter, but the point is that, that what you're getting in, in all of this is a privileging in theology of a reason, ironically. This is kind of the, maybe the place that I'm confused myself, because how can, you know, what we're describing in analytical philosophy, 
in modernity. And I would say that analytical philosophy is a pure product of modernity. I mean, it is modern, mm -hmm. right? To link that to Thomas Aquinas must be the most oxymoronic oh, yeah. 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 difficulty yeah, sure. that's ever occurred. Analytical so, Thomist. So to imagine that somehow the rigor of I guess actually that's sort of a medieval renaissance in the 13th century, but to imagine that the rigor of scholastic method was somehow the thing when you're looking at Aquinas, so that then we too can use these forms of argument and this form of logic, and that's what is allowing us to arrive at truth, which of course, you know, that's not what Thomas thought he was doing. You know, more so that was just the medium that he was working in that has its own history in the Middle Ages. So that even the way the Summa proceeds has a logic to it, but Thomas wouldn't have thought of logic or method as something, uh, you know, he wouldn't have thought of those as being things in and of themselves, but rather descriptions of an internal order that's there because it's participatory in who God is, and God is ordered, not chaos, you know, of course. I get what you're saying. I mean, this is the way that I imagine most, well, certainly all the Protestant evangelical apologists approach, you know, the so-called arguments for, you know, the teleological argument, these other things, cosmological argument that are supposedly founded, Thomas. That in some way they are foundationalists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that's the brilliant thing about Thomas is that's really not what he's concerned with. And you get this later too. So in Anglicanism, sort of a key figure is in, I wish I knew more about him, actually, because it's interesting to this conversation, is Richard Hooker. Because Richard Hooker and his laws of ecclesiastical uh, polity, what an odd name, right, uh, for a systematic theology book, because it really doesn't have anything to do with what we would think that title would invoke, is firmly grounded in a reading of Thomas Aquinas, and he's very much within a Reformed context. And so he's trying to work those two things out, trying to come up with some sort of synthesis. And it's what he butts up against all the time as well. And uh, I'm not exactly for sure where I would put him, you know, on a, on a spectrum of these ideas. But this idea, is law something or is method indeed something that exists in and of itself that we can use to arrive at truth or when we speak about law or method, are we just talking about the internal workings of the truth itself, which for Aquinas is certainly God's knowledge. That's truth. That's being. It's who God is. And knowledge there doesn't even, you know, isn't any kind of compartmentalized notion as we would have, you know, knowledge or mind versus something else. For Aquinas, it's not like that. You know, knowledge is just uh, capital knowledge would be truth, the truth. And that's who God is. And that's where God's operating, and we're only participating in that. So anything we talk about or any method that we might discover, it's not in any way separate from just the internal consistency of God himself. And Does that to, make sense? Yes. So I think that's the shift, right? Yes, that's the shift. That is, can knowledge, can reason, can free will function independent of participation in God. You know, for Aquinas and most Christians before them uh, would say no. You know, that's the traditional understanding of how <laughs> creation you, relates to God. But you understand in that you've just wiped out what evangelical theology, what evangelical apologetics, and what 
presumed evangelical philosophy is all about. Yeah, well. Um. <laughs> in other words, okay, how are you saved? Well, in a good Calvinist understanding or in a contractual understanding, the way that you are saved is in and through a keeping of the contract. You do this, God mm -hmm. will do that. It is dependent upon human capacities of understanding. Yeah, them. yeah. Let's, let's, uh, that's a really good point. You just jogged my memory in a great way. So in just what you said, and this, I think, gets at the problems of voluntarism, right, in a, in a way then points back towards nominalism and university of being. In that equation that you just spoke of, there is the implicit understanding that if God is working, then in whatever you know realm or space however you want to imagine that that if there's god's action there can be no human action if there is human action the same thing is true then god is not a part of that action either and i mean that's the difference really so that human will and human action work on the same level as god's action and god's will so that's a very nominalistic way of thinking, but there's no universals, uh, very voluntaristic, we're thinking about God in terms of will, and we're speaking univocally. But of course, like, I mean, the way that the medievals and patristic Christians would have thought about this is that our will operates freely, but on such a level that it isn't able to really affect anything, um, you know, with real finality, meaning that as finite beings, we don't do anything that has infinite repercussions, such as our own salvation, or such as, you know, there isn't, there can't be a contract. That's an absurd thing to even talk about. We can cooperate, we can participate, we can, we make choices all the time that either bind us closer to that grace that it's at work or not, but God is the one setting final ends for us, not we ourselves. And once you've said that, then the very definition of what it means to be sinful or fallen mm -hmm. or failed, it is by definition not a, an, a working out of one's own free will, but in fact it's a loss of free will. It's an enslavement, and that's, of course, the way the Bible always talks about it. Not that one is freely exercising their will in rebellion, mm -hmm but that, in fact, one is enslaved to a delusion. That's right. That's right. Their will is, in fact, disenabled. That's right. Which is just, you know, to put it at a, in a really simple way that I think people will get, is to say, what is freedom? Well, is freedom the ability to choose good or evil? Well, if that were the case, is God free? <laughs> you know, we don't expect yeah. that it's even a possibility that God can choose evil. So no, freedom must be something else. Freedom is growing in faithfulness. Freedom is growing holy, growing like God himself. Which is a, a huge thing to say. I mean, that, this is part of the value of Hart's recent book, even mm -hmm. though it's not the main subject of his book on that all shall be saved. That he, I think he does a very nice job of saying what freedom is and is not. Mm -hmm. And you have whole philosophical, theological traditions that imagine that the whole issue then is an exercise, a right exercise of free will. We can exercise free will for evil, or we can exercise free will for the good. And the whole point of Christianity is to convince us to do it for the good. That's right. Which so, is a strange I mean, universe. 
So, I mean, I know we're way off topic here, but I think this is important in the sense that this is where you like to reference a lot as well. Salvation is primarily something that is working in our lives right now. We are being saved from sin and death. I think this is where you see how true that is, because if we're we're going to think about this in you know the sense of a participatory ontology, so we're we're growing, we're learning, we're living, we're we're we live and move and have our being in, in God, who is the whole or the ultimate reality. God is being. You know, we're not. We're talking about two different categories: infinitude, infinitude. When we talk about sin, these things that exist. Uh, you know, on this finite level, uh, that's the only way they can exist because otherwise, you know, uh, this is just traditional Christian privation theory that there's nothing such as like a sin on an ontological level or evil on an ontological level, but it exists in our lives. So that our faithfulness really does uh, affect our salvation here and now in the sense that Christianity works. <laughs> it might come as a shock to people, but that yes, the grace of God in our lives now works. We're set free from sin and death. But even to to get that wrong some of the time, or to get it wrong most of the time, really doesn't uh, have an effect on uh, infinite things. So that salvation, and this is, I think, you're. I'm trying to answer, I guess, in a roundabout way one of your critiques of Hart's book is, well, does focusing on universalism make it all about the hereafter? Does that sort of, does that place the emphasis in the same place that the infernalists would have it and such this life doesn't actually matter? I think just the opposite is true, that it relegates the salvation that we understand, the salvation that we are growing in now to, you know, a, a actual imminent salvation from the sins that plague us, mm -hmm. but it participates in a salvation that is final that we don't understand now and that we are growing in uh, as well, or we're progressing in and sort of, you know, the way traditional Christians would have thought about this. It's not a static thing. You're not just, Oh, I got saved yesterday. Yeah. Um, we're being saved now. That's the part that uh, the little that we understand our, our freedom is yes, we grow in freedom as we are bound bond or united with Christ and righteousness. But the way all that works out, that's really out of our hands in the end. So I think it both prioritizes this life and our experience of salvation, as well as uh, prioritizing Christ's victory over sin and death in more of a, you know, um, a cosmic realm. I very much appreciated part. There's no one who more incisively critiques and analytical. He kind of makes fun mm -hmm. of analytical philosophy and. He almost, with, with that little section that he's doing on free will, if he is correct, and I think undoubtedly he is correct, you know, what is free will? Well, free will is mm -hmm. to be doing what we were created to do. Uh, it's That's to right. line ourselves with, with who God made us to be. And if you're not doing so that, man, you, don't, you lost it. That's right. So I'm thinking about how to tie this back into our discussion about these various forms of Thomism. Well, there is. It does tie in because, in other words, the analytical Thomists are imagining, they're reading Thomas. Again, it is this understanding in which will and reason, a kind of nominalist understanding, is necessarily you're still reading Thomas as if that's what he believes, which is yeah. absurd. We could also say that they're just these types of theologies in general, right? So there's theologies that prioritize uh, a form of knowing 
at the realm of coming up with doctrines that can be held, that can be understood, but not necessarily participated in. And those are very useful if you want to say who's in and who's out. But in the end, um, what does that have to do with the salvation that's being worked out in our lives right now? Uh, versus, you know, a theology that's historically grounded that has a way of actually addressing our contextual issues that is practical in a sense and leads to growth and virtue and holiness. I think what you're describing in the end, that we've entered a period in which there are whole forms of theology that have involved themselves, implicated themselves in evil, unknowingly, blindingly. And I think it's specifically this discussion, right? Mm -hmm. It is this discussion in which we imagine a world in which a kind of Augustinian two cities or two realms or two kingdoms in which the never the twain shall meet. And we do one thing in one kingdom and another thing in another. And human reason, it's almost as if human reason, human power, human politics is a kind of end in itself on the same order as the realm and reason of God. Yeah, yeah. And that's so that idea is both enshrined in neo scholasticism, it's enshrined, I mean, it's a lot of Protestant theology tends to think that way, right? Um, as well as neo-scholastic Catholic theology. And the answer to that is to say, no. (laughs) 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 Actually, there aren't, you know, uh, anything of value or anything, anything that's going to last, if you want to think in terms of like two orders, you know, that's that's an easy way of thinking about it, is that, uh, you know, natural things really do have a supernatural end. And I think that's Aquinas' project of theological. Let's, let's move into that. Let's lean into the fact that we have a supernatural end so that any growth, is a, any growth in knowledge is really a growth in a knowledge of God. And this is, I think, to connect those two points. Well, we know how that works in the here and now. It's, you know, growth in faithfulness, growth in, you know, the church should literally be uh, a way of being saved from the evils of this world, even though it doesn't seem like it is for a lot of people for whatever reason. But those dots don't get connected by us because we're not operating on the same level as infinitude or eternity, such that God is the one that brings all those things to their proper end. But that end really is a supernatural end, God himself, so that there is no end that you know, the U.S. Go- There's no salvation in the U.S. government. <laughs> There's yeah. no salvation. I mean, I think you could say that the negative may be easier. I can agree with you. But let me go back, though, before I say this. You said mm-hmm. a really good thing in describing nominalism. I just want to make the point that we're continuing to build on your description, that nominalism or both Duns Scotus and Occam are describing the human realm as a kind of parallel to the divine realm and the only one we know you know i mean it, i mean i guess like kant's like the ultimate nominalist right there may be that stuff up there but we can't talk about it and never the twain shall meet <laughs> yes yes that's right and this is the beauty this is obviously radical orthodoxy my own work but yeah the end of that is nihilism mm-hmm. it, it is just it is just evil it is personal psychological nihilism It is a philosophical nihilism, but it's a political nihilism. And I think that's the realm that we're working in. 
that we're working in a realm of a kind of political nominalism, two kingdoms, two realms, two modes of thought, two ways of doing ethics that never the twain shall meet. Mm -hmm. And so that Christianity is, in fact, of no earthly good whatsoever in this understanding. And that's my fear. I very much like the emphasis. What the reaction to that is, is, well, is not say, oh, God will work it out. But that, no, in fact, it does depend upon, to some degree, a real-world transformation of people. Salvation is a real-world intervention. Yeah, and so, like, the yeah, that's right. And the traditional way of thinking about that is real-world transformation is participation in God working it out on, you know, at a level that we can't comprehend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's my, that's my... That's my piddling little critique. Yeah. I think we've done it, John. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) We've once again solved all of the problems. Um, I I hope that my characterization is wrong. I hope that I'm wrong about many things here. That is that I think we've made some sweeping statements that you don't want to just write people off and say, well, this is definitive of who and what they are. But I think by naming this thing in the way that we have and saying, well, here here are the realms in which people are working, they may not be completely aware that that's the the context Mm -hmm. of which they're a part, or even that there are other contexts. So that the dots that we're connecting is that perhaps analytic Thomism, this is something that I haven't necessarily encountered, but that that is the heir of neo-scholasticism or neo-Thomism. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. That, that you've got very interesting things coming together. In John Haldane is depicted as the kind of the, the father of analytical Thomism. Haldane is a Scottish Catholic philosopher working at St. Andrews and in, at Baylor University. Here is someone of that background, but he's teaching in a Baptist university. Hmm. Two things, two worlds are coming together here. Not really. It's not. Uh, I mean, in other words, they're really all of the same world. It, I'm sure the, they're both thrilled to find that out. <laughs> 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 I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> in other words, the, the good Baptists, the good right-wing, conservative, Trump-supporting, gun-toting, conceal-and-carry Baptists, a brand of Catholicism, of a kind of right-wing order of Catholicism, and a philosophical understanding, an analytical, mm-hmm. philosophical approach. This creates a, a world that some people live and move and have their existence in. And I'm not sure they're aware that anybody else is out there. Gotcha. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's good. Well, I mean, it's not good, but <laughs> maybe true. <laughs> yeah, it is dependent upon a very specific historical trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one in which that, I mean, perhaps conceives of God and human participation in God very much along the lines of power or will, you know. But yeah, yeah, it is. seems yeah. to be the, it's very authoritarian. <laughs> yes. It is theological. It's contractual mm-hmm. in, a, in a theological sense. It is philosophical in that there's a whole philosophical school devoted to this understanding. It has its own 
peculiar theological roots, not simply Protestant Mm -hmm. or Catholic. I think that you could, in fact, link it primarily, and again, there would be the the Protestant exceptions. Let me make that the last thing I'm going to ask you. Okay. (laughs) How are you going to put... No, no good news. How are you going to plug Luther into this? Luther. Oh, well, you know, Luther is uh, educated by nominalists and voluntarists. Luther's interesting in this, that I don't know if it's at times his humanity that saves him, even though he doesn't seem very humane most of the time. I think Luther suffers like most people in in the 16th century of just sort of a bad understanding of Aquinas, sort of, you know, Luther's anti-philosophy and everything else. I just don't think he gets it. I guess the world has already fallen apart when you get to Luther, and he just kind of fits right in there, in the sense that no longer are people thinking cohesively about, you know, there's a synthesis between the world and God and uh, what it means to be human. But, you know, the worst thing you might get with Luther in his railing against a the- any kind of theology of glory. I mean, in, in one way, what he's saying is that God mostly remains hidden to us, so we can never really be sure about, we can never really be sure if God is as good as he says he is. <laughs> There's always, you know, this aspect of God that is the deus absconditus. Let me say your answer and see if you agree with what I'm saying. Luther's a nominalist. Oh, yeah, for sure. Calvin is in the Lutheran tradition. Yeah. That Protestantism is a form, now this is too big to state it this way, but Protestantism is a form of nominalism. I guess to be fair, yes, it is. But so is late medieval and you know, Renaissance Roman Catholicism. They're doing all the same things. So that you have Roman Catholic, you know, very well-respected Roman Catholic theologians. Uh, Domingo Banez always comes to mind as being just uh, particularly bad because he just reads like Calvin. Mm-hmm. And what we're getting... I'm trying to simplify it in the various moves of Nouvelle Theology, the various different readings of Thomas that are not nominalist, is then a breaking through, an undoing mm-hmm. of that poor reading that you get, uh, if it is, in fact, Dun Scotus and yeah. William of Ockham. And, you know, the good thing about that is that it's, in that sense, it doesn't just focus on Thomas, because it's also recognizing that Aquinas was plugged in himself into a much larger tradition of reading people like Dionysius. You know, it's not even just what we might now think, you know, maybe erroneously as Western. Like, yes, Aquinas is definitely in the Augustinian tradition, and that comes out really strongly at times, but he's also reading pseudo-Dionysius. He's also, you know, aware of the East, what we now think, you know, we think of as the being of the Eastern fathers. So, it's that willingness to say, well, I'm not going to be one thing. Maybe, and that's what we can take away from this, is, is there needs to be a willingness to say that I'm not going to fit into a theological school or a theological agenda uh, for some other means, but let's just look at the church. Let's look at what's there. Let our theology be Christian <laughs> in that sense and not be too worried about having an agenda for it. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I mean, I think in a way that's the worst thing about neotomism is it was taking a a thinker who was complex and nuanced and brilliant and tying that thinker to an agenda john it's been a great conversation oh good i'm always amazed you can answer all my questions (laughs) (laughs) well if i can't i just make something up so Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. 
You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.